The readings start on page four and then as you see, um, go over. The first one is Corinthians uh, chapter two. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patience, endurance, of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. So going to Job, as Justin said, we'll um, hear from Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar. Then finally from uh, Job, and there's a few um, segments from Job, they jump around a bit, I'll just read them straight through. But firstly from Eliphaz the Temanite, and he replied, if someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled you have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways of hope? Consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it and the breath of God they perish, at the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it, amid disquieting dreams in the night when deep sleep falls on people. Fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? And now Bildad, the Shuhite, replied, How long will you say such things? Your words are blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will, be your, will your future be. 
Ask the former generations and find out what their ancestors learnt. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? And then Zophar, the Namathite, and he replied, Are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce others to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom, for, two, for true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. And finally, the segments of Job's replies. Job 9, 12, 13 and 19. And Job says, He is not a mere mortal like me that I may answer him, that we might comfort, confront each other in court. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then Job replied, Doubtless you are the only people who matter and wisdom will die with you. But I have a mind as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things? But I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. Only grant me these two things, God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer, or let me speak and you reply to me. I know that my Redeemer lives, that in the end he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him, with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Bronwyn. When, when the scriptures are read in such ways, uh, it often becomes clearer for us. So thank you for those who serve uh, in reading scripture to us. Uh, today, tonight is about being a better friend, as I said. Today, tonight is about being a better friend to those who are suffering. So let's pray. Father, give us insight and love for our friends who struggle with suffering and especially to our friends who struggle with you. Help us to sit with them. Give to us compassion, your compassion, and give to them faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Empathy is so hot right now. There are books and lectures and podcasts and conferences you can go to on empathy. There's even an empathy museum in the United Kingdom. People have done their work on why this is the case, but my guess is that it's because our society has become so fractious 
that even something as simple as empathy seems to be beyond us and anything is better than the mess that we're currently in. And so in a world where people rarely listen, where shouting is a form of persuasion, where arguments are made with emotional flooding, empathy, quite frankly, seems like a very, very good idea. Google YouTube, Google or YouTube, Brené Brown and empathy, and you'll see what I'm talking about. When Job's three friends start speaking in chapter 4, they muddy the waters, as if the waters weren't already so muddy. It could be said of the three friends of Job and Elihu later that they needed more empathy. But I'll contend that while this is true, of course, empathy is only the first base in what you can learn. There is so much more. In the same way that you don't want to just say that Job is about being patient, it's so much more. Uh, for the friends, it's much more than just being empathetic. The very ancient book of Job is a book, it is said about suffering, but it's much more than that. It's about wrestling with God. You have suffered. And if you haven't in the past, uh, you will in the future. Perhaps you're suffering right now. And certainly you have friends who have suffered and perhaps suffered greatly. Perhaps this topic is profoundly relevant to you right now. What were you like in that moment or during that season? Could you have done a better job? Probably. Have you got any horror stories? You know, some early occasions that you learned from. You're not going to do it. You're not going to do it like that anymore. Is that you? I'd love to hear your stories. Today is about sitting with your friends as you wrestle with God together. Today we touch in into Job 4 to 27. Brahman read us only a section of that. If you want to get the whole sweep, you'll need to get a Bible and read it yourself. A summary for the newbies to Job. Job, we're told, is a good man, chapter 1, who fears God and shuns evil, and he loses absolutely everything in a tsunami of pain, and he doesn't know why. And so he sits down in dust and ashes, close to the ground. He sees no rhyme, no reason, no method in the madness. It's like he and his friends sit down at a table and on the table is a jigsaw puzzle of his life and Job says the pieces don't fit the puzzle is faulty and the friends all sit opposite him saying no 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 the puzzle does fit we know God the puzzle does fit you've just got to make them fit effectively now the reader that's you and me we know something that neither Job nor his friends know or ever find out we're told in chapters 1 and 2 that Job is suffering for a specific reason and that it's a test, I hesitate to use the word, but a test of a kind to see if Job fears God only for the things. Uh, in one level, it's a, a, a testing of God's claim that Job fears me for my sake. 
But the Satan, the head, says, uh, the Satan, the accuser, says that Job has a hedge around him, those pleasurable things in life. Take away the pleasurable things and he'll do what everyone does. He'll curve in on self, very understandable, and he'll curse God. He'll give up his faith. He'll die. But Job doesn't have access to this very specific reason that you and I have access to. And so he prays and agonizes and argues with his friends in chapters 3 through 37 in the dust and ashes. In the end, he wants God to show up, which God does in chapter 38. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Question me. Brace yourself like a man and I'll question you and you will answer me. And then he gives answers of such gravitas and levitas. In the end, Job gets up, up, and we are asking through the series how we can get up to out of our own dust and ashes. Three points today, and they're all listed in Yazine on page eight. What the miserable comforters argued in three rounds. Secondly, what we learn. And thirdly, what Job prayed or agonized over in the suffering, what his Godward movements were. Firstly, what the miserable comforters argued in three rounds. Well, chapters 44 through 27 are long-winded. Is that like sermons here at Churchill? Long-winded conversations. Three friends trying to help God, excuse me, help Job and defend God in the same breath. Three rounds of dialogue, Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job, Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job, Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job. I'm quite finished. Job sums up their words in chapter 19, verse 2, when he says, How long will you torment me and crush me with your words? They're crushing me. He calls them earlier worthless physicians. And I hear that, and I don't want to be a worthless physician. I've come to a friend to heal, and all I have left at the end is a bloody mess. I don't want that. I presume you don't either. The phrase, who needs enemies with friends like these, is made for Job. Not that everything they say is wrong. That's part of the, the profound nature of this ancient work. So let's go to them. Uh, 1a, Eliphaz and his spiritual experience. Eliphaz begins by saying in 4 verse 2, if one ventures a word with you, will you be offended? Can I speak now? Because who can keep from speaking? Eliphaz basically says to Job, look, at first glance, what you're experiencing is normal. Happens to all flesh. Chapter 4 verse 19, not printed. Eliphaz says, we all live in houses of clay. That's us. And uh, we can all be crushed like a moth. That's true. 4 verse 21, he says, in the end, the cords of our tent are pulled up, talking about death, we pack up shop and return to the earth. Now, that may be true, but Eliphaz believes that for Job, it must be something else, something particular is happening. And so he says uh, in verse 6, should not your piety be your confidence? You know, are you pious enough? You know, should your blameless ways be your hope? And then he says, consider now, 4 verse 7, who being innocent has ever perished? Eliphaz believes that Job must be suffering because he thinks he's sinless. And Eliphaz wants to sort of put his defense in, 
early into a check position. And all the friends are looking for checkmate. 1 verses 4. Later, Eliphaz calls Job a fool and tells him to appeal to God. And how does he know all this? On what basis does he make this speech? And the answer is in 4 verse 12, from a mystical experience. He he believes that God has given him a word. 4 verse 12, a word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it amid disquieting dreams in the night when deep sleep falls on people. Fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake and a spirit glided past my face and the hair of my body stood on end. The spirit stopped but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes and then I heard a hushed voice, can a mortal be more righteous than God? No, he can't. God is correcting you, Eliphaz says to Job, and uh, in 5 verse 27, he finishes his speech by saying, the three of us, maybe four, uh, who knows when Elihu arrives, we've examined all this, and it's true, so hear it and apply it to yourself. Boom. He's a mystic. You might say an early charismatic. By the way, the conservatives get a serve in a moment. Like many, like some who claim to have such experiences, although importantly not all, They often claim an authority that isn't there. They claim because they had an experience, an intense spiritual experience, that's enough to say what they think with overconfidence. It's important to say of Eliphaz that he's not all wrong. We are all frail and God does punish sin. We know that. But his speech doesn't apply in this specific situation. That's the key. It doesn't apply to Job and the reader knows it. In chapter 6, Job replies, this all just riles him up, and he basically says, you guys are like a dry creek bed, nothing refreshing at all. 6 verse 4, teach me and I will be quiet. Show me where I've been wrong. Show me how the pieces fit because they're not fitting. Sometimes we have intense spiritual moments, but in the end, intense spiritual moments can never carry the kind of authority that Eliphaz places on it. Where did it come from? We don't know this spirit gliding past his face. That experience may truly have happened, but God in the end says it's wrong, that experience, or at least wrongly applied to Job. Just because something is spiritual and intense doesn't make it right. What we need is some epistemic humility. I'll come back to that. Secondly, Bildad and his solid traditions. In chapter 8, he starts aggressively. Verse 2, how long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. You're all hot air, Job. Does God pervert justice? No, he doesn't. Does the Almighty pervert what is right? So you must have sinned. Or your kids, 8 verse 4, like a dagger to his heart. When your children sinned against them, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Not always wrong. You read Romans 1 wrong in this particular circumstance and so you'll need to repent 8 verse 5 if you seek God earnestly plead with the Almighty if you're pure and upright then he'll rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state Bildad defends God God only makes someone suffer in this way if they've sinned ergo you must have sinned and how does he know this the answer is it's accepted among us It's our way, our traditions that tell us it's so. 8 verse 8, 
Ask the former generations. Ask what their ancestors learned. If I can put it this way cheekily, it's in the prayer book. See, For we were born only yesterday and know nothing. Now that's actually true. So why does he claim something? And all our days on earth are but a shadow. James says that. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? After all, as G.K. Chesterton said, tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. Tradition is the democracy of the dead. Bildad would have agreed wholeheartedly. He is an early conservative. But just because something is from former generations doesn't make it true and certainly doesn't make it true in the particular God may use our tradition to reveal his truth, but truth lies in God, not in the tradition itself. Job replies, gosh, do you think I don't know all this? 13 verse 1, my eyes have seen all this, my ears have heard and understood it. We're looking at the same puzzle. What you know, I also know I'm not inferior to you. You, you, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent. For you, that would be wisdom. See, you say it best when you say nothing at all. It's a backhand. Zophar, in his tough word, in chapter 11, Zophar knows the truth. Zophar will speak the truth. Zophar is a straight talker. He's an early fundamentalist. The harder the word, the more likely it is that it's true. I don't know if you know people like that. 11 verse 2, are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce others to silence? Not me. I'm still playing the game of chess. I'm still looking for checkmate. Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say, my beliefs are flawless and I'm pure in your sight. Not true, by the way. Just saying that this suffering doesn't relate to my sin. There's not a link there. 11 verse 5, oh, I wish that God would speak and that he would open his lips against you. Oh, be careful what you wish for. God does speak and he opens his lips against Zophar in chapter 42. But God will disclose to you the secrets of wisdom, 11 verse 6, for true wisdom has two sides. You're looking at this from the wrong angle, Job. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. If you knew the true depths of your sin, and you'd know why you were suffering. So far, by the way, is easy to understand. Repent, and God will restore you. He's got fire in his belly. Now, it's a lot of words there, and it's, you throw them all into a washing machine, and you say, well, what am I going to get out of it? Well, you know, while there are differences, the three friends have one thing in common. They lay the blame for Job's suffering at Job's feet, because the only other option for them is to lay it at God's feet. And they won't do that. They're God-men. They'll defend God at the expense of their friend hurting Job. Instead of, for example, saying something like, these are my words, by the way, and I had time to consider it. If I was there at the table with the jigsaw, maybe I would have, and with their knowledge especially without the gospel of Jesus Christ, maybe I would have done exactly, I probably would have been the traditionalist guy. But I've had time to think about it. Maybe here's something different. 
I really don't know why you are suffering the way you're suffering. But stay strong. God is good. There's a word of gospel of, of a kind. You can't trace God, you can't always trace God's hand, but you can trust his heart. Is that a cliche? Maybe that wouldn't help. But something along those lines. What we learn, number two, two A, what we learn is that people can be neat, plausible and wrong. His friends think they're right, their answers fit neatly with their theology and experience. One of them has this word from above and it can all seem plausible, especially if you're vulnerable. People who are vulnerable, of course, uh, are vulnerable in many ways and one of those ways is to receive your words with perhaps even more power than, than you even mean them. But they're vulnerable. And so this seems plausible. It's neat, plausible, and wrong, as Rob said last week, if you, if you heard his message it's on the website, if you want to hear it. Job is not experiencing suffering because he sinned. The opposite is true. As the reader knows from 1 and 2, and God points out to his, the friends in chapter 42, they're neat, plausible, and wrong. They have epistemic pride. Epistemology is the study of what you can and can't know. Epistemic pride is when you speak as though you know what you're talking about when you don't. They think they're right. Conversely, epistemic humility is when you're humble about what you can't know. Those of us who hold to strong doctrines and those of us who have intense spiritual experiences can find ourselves certain about such things. Now, we need to be careful about what we claim by our experiences. There's such a thing as overconfidence with our doctrines. You want to be confident with your doctrines. There's such a thing as overconfidence. By definitions, it's problematic because you'll have all the terrific arguments in your mind. You'll be playing chess while you're speaking to someone in pain. It can lead to inappropriate application and even add to someone's pain. And you can make a lot of people listen by being certain. You get a lot of people to do a lot of things with certainty. Quite frankly, you can get a lot of money, especially in America on television shows, by being certain, send in $20 and you will be healed. It's wrong. A word of God came to me, it's wrong. In this case, it's not right. And you and I, we need to be humble about God, certainly humble about what we don't know, and even humble about what we do know. And I think James strikes the right balance when he says, if any of you are sick, you should check your heart, you should consider possibility that, that there's sin in your life and repent of it, but there's no definite link. See, it's just a consider this. B, 2B, you can, you can resist a foolish word. What does Job do with these words? He doesn't buy it. And you don't have to either. He doesn't buy his friend's argument. He resists. And this will take strength, especially if you're feeling vulnerable. 
And by the way, Job doesn't reject the words saying something like, I don't need this negativity in my life. That's very Australian. And it really is, in many ways, about putting your head in the sand. Like, if it's negative, I don't want to hear it. There's much more than that for Job. Much more integrity than that. In chapter 12, verse 1, Job replied, Doubtless, you are the only people that matter. You're the ones. And wisdom will die with you. A little sarcasm there. But I have a mind as well as you. I've got a brain. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things? Now, I went to Sunday school when I was a kid, and I got lots of memory verses, but chapter 12, verse 3 wasn't one of them, and maybe it ought to be. I have a mind as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things? What a great memory verse. Job never stops fighting, and Rob talked about this last week. Even in his lament, he still puts one foot in front of the other. He is a fighter. And he fights for something very simple. You can't know why I'm suffering. Your answers don't fit. The third thing to learn is that sitting with compassion and speaking with humility wins every time. I gave a message on this 10 years ago and uh, I said, oh, we should probably say nothing when people are hurting. And this uh, person came up to me afterwards and they said to me, uh, Look, th thanks, Justin, for your message, but, you know, we, we've actually got a gospel. You know, we've, got, we've actually got good news for people. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you're right, actually. You're completely right. That said, sitting with compassion and not speaking, perhaps for a season, and then speaking but only with humility, it wins every time. When Job's friends first arrived, they said nothing. Chapter 2, verse 13, 4, they saw that his suffering was very great. They saw how great his suffering was. Sitting with people for a season without speaking is a really good idea. And it requires some level of discipline. I don't know about you, but sometimes I go into a situation where I know somebody's hurting and I drive over thinking this is going to be hard for them, hard for me and so in the back of my mind I start arming myself with words and maybe the problem's in the verb to arm yourself as though you've got some weapons for the moment as though a fight in some sense is on the cards and I know you don't I don't intend it but maybe that's what happens when you have got your words sorted out before before turning up but then they do speak, and they go and defend God, which is honourable, right? I mean, I, I'm employed to defend God, as if you could defend the lion. <laughs> but they defend God until they get above their pay grade as humans before a holy God, who knows it all, A to Z. You, you know only Peter Q, right? He knows A to Z. So they speak, and Job, Job, in fact, helps them. He tells them what to do. In chapter 21, verse 5, he says, look at me. Now stop speaking and look at me. Look at the boils all over me. Be appalled. And in chapter 19, verse 21, he says, have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. They ought to have just sat with compassion and they ought to have spoken with humility. You're right, we don't know. God is good, this doesn't fit. 
how can we help? Is there something I can do to help? I don't know why he's suffering. Stay strong. Can't trace his hand, but you can trust his heart. Something. In the end, the friends are too busy arguing to pray with him. And so Job prays himself. Thirdly, and finally, what Job prayed in the suffering, which leads us on to next week. A theme of these chapters is Job's agony directed Godward. And that's important, by the way, especially if you feel like your friends fail you. Uh, Because you could just get upset at them and leave God out of the picture. And that will be uh, natural. But Job doesn't do that. He goes to God. So I want to say to you, pray to Jesus. Jesus in John 15, 15. He says on the eve of his own innocent suffering, but he knows why he's going to suffer. He says, indeed, I have called you friends. Jesus says that to you and to me. I'm calling you my friend. I'm calling it. You're my friend. For everything that I learnt from my Father, I have made known to you. I'll let you know things from God. Job says, first, I need God to come. 13 verse 3, but I would speak with the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. Come next week. In 13 verse 20, he says, only grant me two things then I will not hide myself from your face, withdraw your hand from me, and let not the dread of you terrify me, then call and I will answer, or let me speak and you reply to me. God grants him his request. But don't you love this lovely interaction? God, withdraw your hand and show me your face. The hand is hurting, I want the face of his kindness. He wants God there with him, close to the ground, for God to draw near to him down in his dust and ashes. He wants to know what the Apostle Paul says when he says, the God of all comfort. He wants that one. And so he can find out how the pieces of the puzzle fit. He never finds it out, by the way. I think God puts the pieces back into a little bag and sets it aside and shows him something better. But Job's saying, in my crucible, are you there at the bottom in the depths, will you lift me out, Psalm 40? In my pain, will you listen to my case? Do you know what the gospel of Jesus says? It says that in our depths, God came. In our weakness, our frailty, God came in the person, Jesus Christ. I don't mean this flippantly, for this is not cheap news, but it could be treated as cheap news. It is good news that lifts me up from the dust and ashes. He came close to the ground. He went in the ground. Job says, I not only need God to come, I need an arbiter. Chapter 9, verse 32. God is not a mere mortal like me, that I might answer him. I can confront a mere mortal, that we might confront each other in court. I'd love to take him to court. You know, man versus God. Come next week. He says, if only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me, right? If only there was someone like that, so that his terror would not frighten me anymore, then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands, I cannot. I want that arbiter. Do you know what the gospel of Jesus Christ? It says that when God came, he came as a mediator between me and my God. So I could speak up. 
He came to remove God's rod by dying for me. All my sickness, all my sorrows, Jesus carried up the hill. This is good news that lifts me up from my dust and ashes, but profoundly, not, not cheaply. And thirdly, Job says, I need hope to sustain me. In chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, some of the most profound words you'll ever read, and George Frederick Handel knew this. I'll pop it up on my Facebook page tonight for your viewing and listening pleasure. Six minutes of pure joy. Hoping against hope, but without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, with only shadowy thoughts of the doctrine of the resurrection, Job says, 19 verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know he lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Even if I waste away here, I know that in the end I will see God in my flesh. Is that resurrection hope? That hope leads him to stay standing, to be dignified in the suffering and to see a possibility that there is rhyme and reason, there is method in the madness. Perhaps one day I'll be able to see how the pieces of the puzzle fit. You know what the Gospel of Jesus says? When God came in our depths as a mediator, he rose from the dead, so that we can say with confidence, I know that my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, he lives. Our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and this is good news. Come on Thursday. In the meantime, be a better friend. Amen? Sit with people. Listen closely. Validate the experience. Validate the pain. Be empathetic, of course. First base. Some of you may also be sympathetic. But speak to, speak the gospel, not cheaply but profoundly. Don't get above your pay grade. Speak the gospel with compassion and humility. Let's pray. just going to leave you with a moment to consider what sort of friend you are to someone right now who's suffering or or perhaps you might like to think about what sort of friend you are in such a way that if someone came to you would you be ready and all of us are different in this space some of us are naturally empathetic and some of us are naturally uh, a little more um, blunt and uh, some of us well we pride ourselves on our neat theology but we don't want to be stuck there in a way defending you in a way that hurts a friend we don't want that just give you a moment to pray and to consider what kind of friend you are and like to be in the future God of all comfort, we thank you that we can share, we can pass on the comfort that we ourselves have received from you. Jesus, thank you for calling me your friend. 
being here, having experienced what I've experienced and being raised from the ground, from the dust, from the ashes, from the tomb. Now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, an arbiter. And yet that didn't come easily. You had to die, rock of ages. You were cleft for me. You were torn apart for me. You didn't try to tear me apart. Job's friends did. You were, you were cleft for me. So let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin a double cure. Father, we recognize ourselves as naked and we recognize that we ourselves will die. The cords of the tent will be broken, be lifted at some point. There's no point in denying that. And yet we live now through this life with hope, hope the resurrection hope, so that we can say that while I draw this fleeting breath, my eyelids shall close in death, and yet we shall rise from the dead, beholding thy throne. Amen.